This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Thousands of teachers are expected to be at the state capitol today and tomorrow to protest low pay and lack of student funding. One of the early arrivals is Stephanie Batuli, a drama teacher at Skyview Academy in Douglas County. I mean, our teacher salaries are much lower than the median salaries are in the rest of the country. And it's just a shame because we have talented educators that are moving out of Colorado. With all the challenges, how do you get people into the teaching profession? With us is Eugene Sheehan. He's the dean of the College of Education and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Northern Colorado. He joins us on the phone from his office in Greeley. And hi, Dean Sheehan. Good morning, Andrea. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Let's talk about how society views teachers these days. This is a clip from the movie Bad Moms that you said captures that public perception. Honey? Honey? Are you okay? Coach says I'm not starting. I'm a bench warmer. Wait, what? No, that's, that's impossible. You're the best forward on that team. Oh my god, my life is ruined. I'm never going to college. I might as well just become a teacher. Okay, so why do you think people see teaching this way? Well, you know, I, um, I, I think there, there are several sort of beliefs that, that, that have been held for quite a while that, uh, you know, if you, if you can't do, you, you know, you can teach. And that's a real myth because teaching is a highly skilled and very complicated job. But unfortunately, in society, we somehow or other see teaching as a fairly easy job that almost anyone can do. Um, so there's a public narrative out there, and that movie clip that uh, that I suggested, I kind of uh, it sometimes epitomizes it for me that you know it's it's not a great job, it's easy, and we really need to move away from from that narrative and and sort of bust the myth that it's a it's easy to become a teacher because it actually isn't in the United States, at least in in Colorado. Uh, secondary teachers have to have the exact same degree in, say, mathematics as a non-teacher, and they're trained in teaching. And usually in, in most teacher prep institutions, the students who are in teacher preparation programs have higher GPAs than, than their colleague students in the same major because they need to maintain a higher GPA to get into the uh, to get into the teacher program, so it's you know it's a myth that's been around for quite a while that teaching sometimes uh, teaching is an easy job. Right. Um, and, and and so let's look ahead. back a bit. Uh, do you think that perception is different from say a few decades ago? Well, you know, um, I mean, my, my role then was very different a few decades ago. I think that teachers probably were, at least we think they were held in higher esteem, that, you know, it was a good job to be a teacher, teachers were respected, and, and this plays into a, an, another piece that's why it's difficult to, to recruit teachers these days, that, you know, that the, the job is just more stressful, and the the, the stressors on teachers are, are increasing, and, and they seem to be... Um, well, when you talk to teachers, when we talk to our teacher candidates, they seem to be getting a little less support from society. So, you know, we all have the anecdote of, well, when I was in school, if I said something bad, right. uh, or if I did something bad, my parents would, and then the next is not good what the parents would do. And nowadays, we tend to hear more that the parents are much more willing to question what the teacher does. And that Clearly, not every teacher is infallible, but there's that shift in 
support for teachers in the education system. And, and so that adds stress as to what the, the teacher does. So to answer your question, it probably was a little different 40 mm-hmm. years ago. There's a teaching shortage in Colorado, particularly in rural areas. And part of your job is recruiting students who want to be teachers. I wonder how that's different from recruiting in other professions, say engineering, healthcare. Is it a tougher sell now? Well, it is for some of the reasons, you know, that, uh, you know, the the teacher you just had on, Stephanie, said that the median salary is lower. So right off the get, uh, right out the door, um, students who enter the teaching profession or teacher preparation programs generally know that they're going to be paid less than uh, comparably educated. Remember what I said, a degree in math. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to have a degree in math to be a math teacher. So there are other things you can do with math. So the salaries will be lower. They know that going in. It, it's becoming more of a, the, the stresses in the job are, are increasing, so that's different. And and teaching is a little different from most other jobs, from from my perspective, in terms of recruiting students into the profession, in that it's one of the only jobs out there where potential recruits for the profession see that worker in action every day. Right. So you've got high school students in the classroom who are in, you know, they're in the classroom four or five days a week with a series of secondary teachers in different content areas. And, you know, they, they develop a perception um, of what it's like to be a teacher. And they see what's going on in the classroom. They recognize, you know, uh, good teachers and teachers who, who uh, could do it some improvement. But they also see the stresses that are on the teachers mm-hmm. in the room. And that's very different, say, from, from being an engineer. You know, if you want to be a civil engineer, you, we cross bridges every day. But we don't see uh, every day the, you know, the complex math and so on that goes into the design of a bridge like that. Whereas for a teacher, we do every day. Uh, the, the high schoolers uh, every day see that, um, uh, see how the classroom works and uh, come to understand you know, some of the stresses that teachers are under. And for a teacher, in some ways, um, it really has to be a labor of love uh, along with you know, other things um, because the pay isn't up to par with other professions. I wonder, have you seen the number of applicants to UNC's um, education program changed at all? Well, yes, I have. And let me just go back to, you know, the first part of your, your statement there, a labor of love. I and mean, when you, th- you think about it, that's that's most likely true. Teachers do, you know, love to work with children and, and you know, they and clearly. But we as whether or not we are as a society are willing to accept that to become a teacher is a labor of love and you should accept lower salaries. You know, that's where we're having these teacher days of action. The, uh, the, the teachers are saying, no, 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 we... Um, it is a labor of love. We love what we do, but we really want to be paid a comparable wage for the work that we do in society. And then the other part of your question about uh, you know enrollments, yes, over the last few years around the country, not just in Colorado, there is a shortage, and we have seen decreases in, in enrollment in every teacher, I think in every teacher preparation program across the state over the last uh, four or five years. Uh, UNC's, I think we went up a little bit last year, as did some others. Uh, we hope it goes up this year. You know, and we've done, we've become uh, much more focused on uh, and getting out to high school sooner to talk to uh, high school students about becoming a teacher. So at UNC, we have the, we now have one of the biggest future teacher conferences maybe in the country where 
a few years ago, we, uh, about four years ago, we had 40 students attend. Last This February, we had just about 500. So we're out there bringing high school students who might be interested in teaching uh, to university to talk about what it's like to be a teacher. And we're also working more, more in um, um, hand-in-glove with organizations like Teacher, Teachers Rising and Teacher, the Teacher Cadet Program and community colleges that uh, you know, afford opportunities for high school students and community college students to become teachers. So we're trying to make the system easier, um, get more information out there about the job, that it's appealing. And there are lots of good things that happen in schools every day that I think you know, people um, uh, forget. Mm-hmm. And just to wrap up, um, you, we talk about the perception of teachers, but um, a new NPR Ipsos poll of U.S. voters found a lot of support for boosting teachers' pay. Only one in four people, and that includes Democrats and Republicans, believe teachers are paid fairly. How do you think Coloradans view the protests at the Capitol? Do you think they're sympathetic to the cause? Well, I think, um, yes, I generally think that they are. Um, there's the the Department of Education and the Department of Higher Education last year had um, uh, tours of the state of Colorado, listening tours, and they found that most people agreed that teachers are uh, are paid you know below what they should be, um, right. and so I think there is general public support uh, to increase the wages of teachers to you know something that is is more equitable, more just, and more in line with comparably educated. Uh, college graduates. Dean, and, thanks uh, sorry, so much. Yeah. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Um, sure. Our time is up, but thanks so much for joining us. All right. You are welcome. Take care. Take care. Eugene Sheehan is the Dean of the College of Education and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Northern Colorado. He joined us to discuss teacher recruitment in Colorado. Teachers are rallying today and tomorrow to protest their working conditions. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Police officers who work in schools are on the front lines in the battle to protect students from tragedies like school shootings. Earlier this month, state lawmakers approved millions of dollars in additional school safety funding. That includes more training for these police officers. We wondered at a time of heightened fears what their job is really like. So we turned to Officer Gallardo, who works at Littleton High School. And welcome to the program. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Your job is officially called a school resource officer. Describe an average day. What types of problems do you handle? So a variety of things um, from social media to safe to tells to um, just interacting with the kids on smaller emotional issues that they may be dealing with throughout the day, Um, working with the counselors, the social workers, the therapists, and we have an incredible team assembled at Littleton that Um, are just awesome and they really uh, help the kids and they're just there for them 
all day long. So it would range from maybe the small things to big, um, more concerning issues. Sure. Um, and you mentioned Safe to Tell. Um, it's the anonymous tip line established after the Columbine shooting. And it's seen a spike recently. Tips were up 157% in February over the same month last year. And I wonder how that's affecting you. Well, certainly it's it's um, something that we deal with a lot and it takes a lot of our time. Um, however, it's definitely a solid program. It's a great way for people to anonymously report um, that they think maybe a friend or a, even a parent or a fellow student is um, suffering some type of hardship and they may need um, just immediate intervention. Um, it's completely anonymous. That is very protected. Even we in law enforcement can't get that information of who made that call. So I think it really gives the kids um, a safe way to feel like they can report something that maybe before safe to tell they wouldn't have been comfortable um, coming out and saying, hey, you know, this person uh, is either, you know, suicidal or mentioning suicidal thoughts on social media. And so it's it's been a great program. Of course, you know, it has a little sometimes it's not used as it's intended to use, but more than not, it's it's an outstanding program. It's something that really brings these problems directly to us and we can jump on top of them immediately and address them. Have you gotten tips about potential violence, shootings, um, and how do you respond to those? Sure. Um, If we get anything that even looks like it's possibly a threat against the school or um, the district in any way, we'll um, immediately gather a team, which includes the school, includes people in law enforcement, my supervisors, um, and really attack that problem and reach out to that person and um, you know, most of the time it's it's unintentional. Um, these kids don't sometimes think about what they're putting out there on social media in terms of the photos and the pictures they're taking. And, um, you know, it can range from, oh, I accidentally put a picture of a paintball gun on there to, to anything else. And we just quickly investigate it. We make sure there's no threat. Um, if we feel like there is a threat, then, of course, we would go into a threat assessment and things of that nature. Um, And then, you know, we immediately were required to get back with the people it's safe to tell and give them a disposition as to that investigation. Now, you were on patrol for 10 years before applying for your position at Littleton this year. You're still an employee of the Littleton Police Department. Why did you want this job? Well, I'm a 1989 graduate of Littleton High School, which is ironic. Um, Almost 30 years later, I'm uh, back at that school. So it's really home for me. Um, I'm born and raised in Littleton, so I have really deep roots in this community. And, um, you know, right out of college and high school, I did work at the YMCA with teen groups back when my early 20s. um, And we were kind of winging things back then. Um, So I always knew that I kind of had a heart for kids. And um, it's something that I definitely wanted to do. And uh, the timing was just perfect for me. And uh, I think you have little kids, but it sounds like you see a lot of good in teenagers. Absolutely. You know, the one thing, and my my wife will tell you, I come home every day from work, and she says, you're much happier than you were uh, coming home from those patrol shifts. So I feel it. I see it. Uh, You know, even with, no, you deal with a lot of problems in the school. Boy, the kids, they can put a smile on your face instantly, whether they're dropping something by your office, they thought about you while they were at lunch and wanted to bring you something to eat. Um, So it's a real positive interaction every day as opposed to patrol where, you know, you have so many of those negative interactions out on the streets. And 
um, it's it's really an uplifting position to work in the school. How do you work with the kids that might not be as social, the tougher kids to get through to? Well, that's a great question, Andrea, because there's, I think those are the kids that probably need to be reached out to the most. Um, and, you know, we learn about the frontal lobe when we kind of go through some training um, for this position. We learn about that frontal lobe. Sort of and, that um, kids don't always know consequences right, of what they right. do. Right, and their their frontal lobes are still growing and they're not as mature as an adult brain would be. So um, I like to look for those kids in the cafeteria, in the library, in the hallways that um, maybe appear a little despondent. They're always alone. Um, they're, you know, the ones sitting in the cafeteria in a hoodie and um, really don't want to interact. And those are the ones I really try to go reach out to and sit next to them and get down on their level and talk to them about their family, you know, if they're willing, of course, um, and really try to get a personal relationship with them. And maybe you could be that one person in the school or even in their life at home that they might think, man, I do have somebody here. Mm-hmm. I have someone in this school that cares about me, that's interested in me, that knows my name. Um, then you pull some of that personal information out of them. And throughout the rest of the year, you, you know, you address that kid when he comes in the door. Mm-hmm. You address him by name. You ask him, hey, how was the surgery that you had last week? How'd that go? You know, and let them know that you really do care and you're there and um, you kind of strip off the badge at times and hope they can see you as just an extension of the school I mean, um, administrators. It sounds like you're part law enforcement now and part teen psychologist. A- absolutely. Yeah, you wear a lot of hats in that position. Um, you talk about developing relationships. You went through a week-long training when you moved from working on the streets to working in high school. Other than that, what's the most critical thing you learned? Um, other than the week-long training? Uh, no, I'm sorry. Other than, you know, working with kids and really getting to understand them. Just that this one big thing is just this social media has really changed their lives and um, put all of their personal issues, you know, that we might have had when we were in school that one or two people may have known about these personal issues we were going through. Now everybody knows. Now it's on every Snapchat story. Now it's out there on Facebook. Um, you could have one minor slip up or embarrassment as a student, and boy, now you know four or five, six hundred people are seeing it, even at other schools. And then that can create some real emotional challenges for a kid when they do have a minor slip up, and there's such an audience there to, you know, really either make fun of that incident or really harp on a kid for something that you know back in our day would have just been over within a day. So. Um, really just trying to gain those skills to interact with these kids and help them through some of this stuff. Officer Jason Gallardo is the school resource officer at Littleton High School outside Denver. State lawmakers approved $35 million in next year's budget to improve school safety, and that includes training of school resource officers, or SROs. A new survey from the Pew Research Center found a majority of teens fear a shooting could happen at their school. How much do you fear a shooting? Well, you know, to be honest with you, it's something I think about daily because I want to be mentally, physically, tactically prepared when that day happens. Um, Again, going back to those personal relationships, by the time that day comes where someone wants to perpetrate that kind of horrible act, um, we're the response at that point. But I need to be part of the response at the front end of that. That person typically didn't manifest that thought on that very day. That thought came months, years before. That's where we need to, as great as the money is for security, 
we need to dump every dollar equally into putting more teachers in these schools. Um, some of these teachers are dealing with 38, 40 kids in a classroom. Mm. If that could come down to 20, 24, it would just increase the opportunity to make those personal relationships. Maybe you intervene in that potential shooter's life years before that ever happens. Right. Um, it, this this school shooting change, to get this to stop, it's going to be an evolution, not a revolution. It's going to take some time. And Littleton High School has 1,400 students. You're the only police officer, and you'd be first on the scene. And do you prepare, um, you know, in your mind to be the person who might have to take out a school shooter? Absolutely. We prepare for that. We're vigilant in our training. Uh, We're Littleton PD. We were blocks from Columbine when that happened. There's command staff at my department that were in that building that day. So I was training for this in 2007 when I came on board. We were running through schools. We were tactically moving through hallways. We were shooting Sims guns at each other. We were creating a scenario that would be just chaos with fire alarms, smoke detectors. We've been vigilant in our training for my 11 years here and specifically targeting schools and what that day may look like. So um, if someone comes in that building to hurt a kid, we'll be... I can assure you we'll be prepared, um, and then we're going to do everything beforehand to try to alleviate that that ever comes to fruition. Um, as we said, there's more money in the state budget next year for school security. If you could decide, where would you like to see the money go? So if I had to make a pie chart, more or less, um, certainly selfishly, yes, it would be nice to have another officer in my school. Um, more money for uh, security is always good. If Better cameras, better door security, alarms that would indicate that a door has been breached all day. Um, there's always room for those type of improvements. But again, I'd like to see equally amount of money go to get more teachers, more staff, more social workers in that school. Um, I just, you can try all you want, but 1,400 kids, you're, you're not going to make a connection with that many kids. Officer Gallardo, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much, Andrea. I appreciate it. Jason Gallardo is the school resource officer at Littleton High School. We talked about what it's like to be responsible for the safety of hundreds of kids. Tornado season is right around the corner, and storm chasers are getting ready to spend their lives on the road. They hope a combination of forecasting and gut instinct will lead them close to a twister. Coloradan Tim Samaras is a legend among storm chasers, and there's a new book about him, The Man Who Caught the Storm. Its author, journalist Brantley Hargrove, joined Ryan Warner. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Tim had an important first in storm chasing. Maybe this is what you mean by the man who caught the storm. Uh, What was it? Take us to the scene. In uh, June of 2003, uh, in South Dakota, near Manchester, Tim became the first human ever to gather data from the core of a violent tornado. This was something atmospheric scientists had been trying and failing to do for decades. So his measurement uh, near Manchester sent shockwaves to the atmospheric science community. How exactly did he do that? What did it require of him? 
Tim had sort of an unusual set of skills. Um, he worked for a research and defense contractor, and so he had a lot of experience with uh, research-grade electronics, uh, measuring blast waves, uh, military ordnance. Hmm. And so he took some of this know-how, some of this technological wizardry, and built a hardened probe stuffed to the gills with pressure, temperature, and humidity sensors packed into a shell of uh, quarter-inch-thick mild steel that was designed specifically to resist drag and lift forces. It was actually designed, it was based on an earlier project that was supposed to be able to withstand a nuclear explosion. And Tim figured if it can stand up to a nuclear explosion, surely it can handle a plane's twister as well. And he, he called so, this thing the turtle because it, it was sort of encased. That's correct. And... Uh, In 2003, he was racing this tornado down a dirt road. It was incredibly dangerous. They had uh, debris fluttering down around them. He hopped out of his minivan, dropped the turtle on the ground, and drove away with the wind at his heels. And there it lay in the path of a tornado, and the instruments got into the core. In fact, where he deployed it on the, uh, the gravel road there, his instrument didn't move a single inch even as a a farmhouse just right next to it was uh, shredded and cast into an adjacent cornfield. Oh, my goodness. Now, people who don't chase storms got to know Tim during his time on the Discovery Channel's Storm Chasers. In this clip, he's outrunning a massive tornado while utility poles snap and explode around his team. Punch it. Punch it. He's going to start taking down some poles. How did he come to chase tornadoes? I mean, he he didn't have like a PhD in meteorology or anything, right? That's correct. Uh, He'd been fascinated by tornadoes since he was a little boy. It started with the Wizard of Oz. Uh, He was always fascinated whenever storms blew through. I mean, if he was in class, he'd be looking up at the sky through the window. And so, you know, whenever he was a young man, he'd drive out to Red Rocks, uh, which you know, I'm sure most of your listeners know about, and he'd, uh-huh. he'd post up at this, uh, this makeout spot and just watch the, uh, the storms wash over him. Um, you know, and then he, then he got a job, and, you know, he didn't really have as much time for storms. But after the, the birth of uh, his, his third child, Paul, Tim saw a documentary on PBS. It was a Nova documentary about, uh, you know, these scientists chasing these twisters down, and he was captivated by these these storm chasers. It was just – it wasn't something he thought was, was even possible. He didn't know people did this kind of thing. Mm. And so he went out gradually, you know, just going out and chasing around, you know, Aurora or, you know, just places around eastern Colorado. And eventually his, 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 his passion deepened. You know, he took a Skywarn course, uh, which is basically just this program where the National Weather Service trains uh, spotters to go out and sort of be their eyes and ears on the ground. So he took this course and became a spotter for the National Weather Service, you know, going out there and giving them ground truth. Um, because radar can often tell us uh, that there's a tornadic storm brewing, but it doesn't tell us whether there's a tornado on the ground. And so Tim would be out there reporting to them uh, via ham radio whether there was an actual tornado in progress. Uh, And so that was how he got his start, just, you know, sort of gradually wading in deeper and deeper into this world until he was, you know, spending weeks at a time on the road, driving out to Texas and Oklahoma, uh, you know, where, where the real monster tornadoes are found. In a vehicle that is just like filled with all of these kind of MacGyvered 
pieces of technology to track storms. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there is a direct correlation to uh, his, his passion for storm chasing and the amount of gadgetry <laughs> that he would install in his vehicle. Uh, it's just various minivans that he would uh, he, he'd cut holes into the dash to fit a you know a VGA monitor, and he'd have a 486 PC, which if you're of a certain age, you know what I'm talking about. You know, big tower PC that he would use to uh, uh, display uh, a Delorme roadmap because uh, you know roadmap is an essential tool for storm chasers. You got to know what kind of roads you're dealing with. He loved to cobble together instruments out of just, you know, stuff he could scavenge. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Morner, and author Brantley Hargrove is my guest. His new book is called The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. Samaras is well known in the chaser world as being very safe, and during his time on the series Storm Chasers, you know, he was often seen as a calming force different from the more gung-ho chasers that are often showcased in in that program. Uh, Tell us about his mindset when he was chasing tornadoes. Well, Tim had a no-nonsense mindset. You know, he wasn't uh, like some of his co-stars who are, you know, (laughs) incredibly dramatic and screaming. And, uh, you know, Tim keeps it pretty calm. And he has a mission. Uh, and his mission is to deploy his instruments. You know, by this point, he has various instruments. He's got the, uh, you know, his tried and true turtle probe. He's got a, a media probe, which has a bunch of cameras inside it to take footage from inside tornadoes. And later on, he also developed a, a tower probe, which is the most advanced in situ probe ever devised. And so he, he was a man with a mission out there. He was very serious. Um, so you know, you, I think he would play to the camera occasionally. You know, he'd make some fairly dramatic pronouncements. But uh, he was definitely one of the more sober heads on uh, Discovery Channel's Storm Chasers. In this book, you weave some tornado history in. And I, I was just fascinated to read that before the 1950s, the word tornado was considered taboo by the Weather Service. It wasn't allowed to be uttered in weather forecasts. Well, yeah, back then, I mean, look, even to this day, there's still a lot of things we don't understand about tornadoes. But imagine back then, before radar or any of this stuff, uh, we just had no we had no basis for how to predict them. Um, and, and the National Weather Service, uh, you know, before that, it was the, the Weather Bureau, and then it was the Army Signal Service that was actually in charge of, of weather. And they just had no confidence that they could predict tornadoes uh, with any kind of accuracy. And so they were sort of just threw up their hands. They're like, look, there's not really a whole lot we can do except uh, gather epidemiological particulars in their aftermath. You know, how many people were killed, mm-hmm. uh, how many buildings destroyed. Um, and you're right. It wasn't until the 50s that we actually started trying to predict them. Uh, and, and when the first uh, actual operational tornado warnings and forecasts were first disseminated. In May 2013, the largest tornado ever recorded touched down in El Reno, Oklahoma. Uh, at its peak, it was a massive 2.6 miles wide. Uh, it was also one of the fastest. It had a massive storm core, but also had these smaller sub-vortices spinning around it, some swirling as fast as 175 miles per hour. Oklahoma meteorologist Gary England followed the El Reno storm as it developed. Okay, it's turned a little to the south and a little more to the southeast, so we'll put a different uh, loop, a different uh, projection on this, but El Reno continued the tornado precautions, Union City continued the tornado precautions, uh, mission Mustang over to Will Rogers World Airport, take immediate tornado precautions, below ground is best. Below ground is take best. us into the field that day, 
storm chasers from around the country had descended on this El Reno storm. That's right. And just from that clip you just played, uh, you can hear Gary England struggling to pin down this tornado's trajectory. And this was something that Tim, Carl, and Paul, as they were working to intercept this tornado, struggled with as well. Uh, The tornado was going by points uh, south, southeast, east. Most tornadoes maintain a fairly straight-on trajectory of northeast. Hmm. This tornado was all over the place, and so it presented a huge challenge. In addition to that, it was rain-wrapped, and there's nothing more dangerous than the tornado you can't see. Uh, And so I think for much of the chase, they couldn't see what they were chasing. They just knew that it was to, to the south of them somewhere, and they were attempting to get ahead of it, maybe drop down a little south if need be, and deploy and then get out of the way. And then at one point they realized that this thing is, is, is drifting further away from them and they need to drive south to keep it within range. Uh, and as they do that, the, the tornado shifts uh, more to the east. And at one point during the chase, Tim, Carl, and Paul actually penetrate the tornado's debris core. There's a piece of debris that actually rings off of the frame of their vehicle. Tim immediately recognizes that this is incredibly dangerous and that they need to they need to flee north immediately and so at the next uh, north road they they head that way and then they 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 put a little distance between themselves and the tornado then they go east and all the while they're having trouble keeping track of this thing tell us how that day ended for them well as they were traveling east down this dirt road south of el reno road was called reuter they can't see the tornado but they know it's to their south and there's a point where the rain begins to intensify. Uh, the winds pick up. At one point, the winds are uh, well in excess of 100 miles per hour. And they're, they're driving in a Chevy Cobalt. Uh, it's a four-cylinder sedan. And there are three grown men in it and, and three steel probes. And they're struggling. They're struggling to keep pace. They're struggling with uh, the road conditions. Uh, the road's incredibly muddy. Uh, I would imagine it was hard to hard to keep in a straight line. Uh, from what we've been able to uh, understand about their forward speed, they were probably moving at that point no more than 20 or 30 miles per hour. Uh, these are awful, awful conditions. Uh, and at one point, I'm not sure exactly what Tim sees, uh, but he realizes that they are, to quote him, in a very bad spot. And... At some point, uh, the the DSLR camera that had been recording throughout most of this chase uh, reaches the limit of its uh, storage disk and goes silent. And not long after that, probably a few minutes, they are overtaken by the uh, sort of outer circulation of the tornado. The subvortex of the tornado is this tornado within the larger tornado. uh, has been looping around... Uh, the tornado's periphery, the mother tornado's periphery. And it picked them up into its core flow, carried their vehicle south of the road, uh, then east, then to the northeast, uh, and after about 600 yards or so, deposited their vehicle into a canola field. The image of what was left over is, is pretty grisly. Well, their car was in very bad shape, as you can imagine, uh, after that, that sort of travel. Um, it was, you know, crushed nearly unrecognizable. Um, it, was a, yeah, it, was a, it was a very, very bad ride. And these were the first known storm chaser deaths. 
As impossible as it is to believe, yes, these were the first storm chasers ever killed by a tornado. Usually you're more likely to uh, encounter danger on the drive to the tornado, not so much from the tornado itself. And, you know, I think part of what contributed that was just the nature of Tim's mission. Um, it was dangerous. He had to get in front of tornadoes to to accomplish what he needed to accomplish. And um, that put him in some in some pretty tricky spots. Um, and I think it just eventually his luck ran out. You know, he came up against a tornado that was unlike anything he'd ever seen. It upended everything he thought he knew. Um, and so this was something that I, I think he knew was possible. I think he was worried more and more uh, that tornado chasers were getting too close. But it ended up being him and his son and Carl. Yeah, father and son. There's something particularly painful about that. It's it's heartbreaking. Um, it's 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 heartbreaking for his family, um, uh, for his, his wife Kathy in particular. I mean, if you can imagine, she lost her son and her husband in a single moment. That's just uh, a kind of trauma that I can't fathom. How did you piece together so many of the conversations, the dialogue in this book, as these storm chasers are on the road? I mean, obviously, you didn't have them to interview. What was your source material to be able to bring people so vividly into these places on the plains? I would say my primary source material was Tim's own chase footage. Uh, that's the thing about storm chasers. They record uh, most of what they do, most of their chases. And for Tim, that was doubly so because he was a trying to establish a scientific record for his probe intercepts. And so I had hours of Tim's chase footage where I could you know, practically be sitting in the, in the car next to him seeing what he sees, hearing what he says. So that was immensely helpful in, in piecing some of these scenes together. What is Tim Samaras' legacy? His legacy, I would say, is his data has been immensely useful to uh, vortex modelers, people who use computers to model idealized tornadoes. Before they had a blank space in the equation. They had no data for the lowest level of the tornado, what they call the boundary layer. Hmm. And so Tim filled that in. And you look at any numerical models uh, of tornadoes, uh, published papers about those, you're going to see Tim Samaras cited uh, to this day. For engineers, Tim gave them actual wind speeds to know what to build against. You know, before... All they had to go off of Oh, you, you was, mean like build homes, build buildings, build barns, things that might withstand storms. Exactly, exactly. You know, before all they had was uh, estimates from damage surveys. You know, you go look at a house. Okay, what would it take to bring this house down? So it's a range. It's an estimate. Tim gave them pretty precise figures. Hmm. The third thing I would say his legacy uh, provided was something a little harder to pin down. You know, before Tim got this this groundbreaking measurement, you know, researchers had largely given up on that. Tim showed that it was possible. And so now other researchers are uh, going in his footsteps. Uh, you know, researchers like uh, Joshua Werman in uh, Boulder, Colorado, the founder of the Center for Severe Weather Research. Uh, he has uh, crews who are deploying pods. Uh, to this day, they're still going out there and trying to get ground-level data from tornadoes, and they've gotten really close, closer than anybody except Tim. Well, I want to end with Tim Samaras in his own words, talking about why storm chasing was his passion. 
you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I enjoy the hell out of it. I really do. Out here watching the, the great clouds, the great storms, you never know exactly what you're going to find. Bradley, thanks for being with us. It was my pleasure. Brantley Hargrove is the author of The Man Who Caught the Storm, the life of legendary tornado chaser Tim Samaras. Samaras died May 31, 2013, along with his son Paul and longtime chasing partner Carl Young. The book is out now. Hargrove spoke with Ryan Warner. And coming up, a unique hobby, making prosthetic arms. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This next story is about a Fort Collins man who can claim a unique hobby. He makes prosthetic arms. In fact, Jacqueline Buchanan is part of an international network of people like him. They use 3D printers to make the devices for free. Then they're connected with people all over the world who need them. The project is called Enable. Buchanan's a software engineer, and he's here with us. He brought one of his 3D printed arms. And Jack, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So I'm looking at this arm. It's made of a plastic-like material. If you use it in a certain way, you can get the fingers to grip things. It Velcros Mm -hmm. in place, and it doesn't include any electronics. So it's not especially Um, high-tech. We'll talk in a minute about how you use a 3D printer to make these. Mm -hmm. But you recently designed a new arm for an eight-year-old girl, Zadie Wilson of Kansas City, Missouri, and you'll soon start work on a new device for a child in Denver. Let's talk about Zadie. Why did she need an arm? So Zadie had a birth defect where her arm ended slightly below her elbow. Um, So she'd actually had prosthetics, I guess, when she was younger. Her parents were telling me when we delivered that one. But we met online. There's an online community where her mom went on and posted about that she needed the arm. And and, um, so I responded to that and was happy because it was close enough we could actually go in person. That was really nice. You went to see her in person. Correct. So to bring the the finished arm, I I traveled to Kansas City to bring it to her. And that's a lot more fun. Now, you didn't meet her until you delivered the arm. Um, How do you make something like this remotely? Um, I imagine the 3D printer allows you to do some incredible stuff. Yeah, so what's nice about 3D printing prosthetics is that since you're making each one, um, you can customize each one to fit each person. So there's some basic measurements that have to be taken, you know, how long is the arm, how big around is it, that sort of thing. And... um, and once you've taken those basic measurements, and Zadie's mom was able to do that, then um, she just emailed back and forth, and we started making them. And then I could send pictures of the, arm, the almost done arm and designs of the arm to Zadie, and she could say, oh, that's awesome. Can you make it pink? Can you make it purple? Can you put rhinestones on it? All this different stuff like Did that. Did you put designs on it? Oh, yeah, yeah. It had a little um, – it was all bedazzled. Okay. <laughs> so that's what she wanted. It's tough to conceptualize a 3D printer if you've never seen one. And I wonder how hard is it to use them? They're not that hard. I mean, it's going to get more and more popular. They're a little hard now. I liken it to like, I mean, showing my age, like uh, personal computers in the 80s, right? If you're a bit geeky, they're not that hard to use, but they, they're a little temperamental. Um but it's just making plastic hot and squeezing it out of a little, like, syringe thing. So it just kind of comes out like a, a an old type of printer. 
Yeah, no. So it's like, a th- imagine a little syringe squeezing out hot plastic. Okay. Right? And that syringe just happens to be computer controlled, so it's really accurate. Right. So it's just slowly building up the thing by layer by layer. Right. One layer on top of another layer. I mean, to me, when I saw one, um, something made, it looked <laughs> more like a printer than I had expected because yeah. it sort of pops out. But um, was it tough for Zadie to get used to her new arm? Um, she was pretty quick. So I met her at noon at the Science Center in Kansas City, had loads of fun. Um, in the beginning, I was a little worried because that first hour she was having some difficulties sort of maneuvering with it and figuring out how to use it. And then, but we spent the day um, with family and whatnot. And then we went out to dinner together. And by dinner, she was really good with it. She was totally adept with it, which is, I think, is really fast <laughs> for her to pick it up that okay. quick. I've always imagined that a doctor or medical professional would be the one to make prosthetics. Um, so- That's very true. So there's a, a medical profession prosthetist that has generally made prosthetics. So, and we're hobbyists sort of encroaching in their space. And that is very true, and we try and be aware of that. So we only make prosthetics that are very low risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so we make arms below the elbow. If the amputation is above the elbow, we tend not to. Um, we don't make any legs, um, things like that. So so if you're missing fingers, um, amputated at the wrist, or even above the wrist, below the elbow, these are lower risk types of, of prosthetics. So... Yeah, there is sort of some crossover in the medical area. Why don't you make legs and feet? Um, Legs are just riskier, right? If somebody, if you make it wrong and they fall over, there's a risk of them really hurting themselves. And you want to get it right. And so it makes sense to have somebody with some professional background do that. I think that will change. I think making a prosthetic for somebody... Uh, who's amputated below the knee, particularly, that hobbyists will be able to do that pretty soon. Um, I think, you know, you you want to follow some pretty strict instructions, but if you follow some good instructions, you'll be able to make a leg for that. And maybe above the elbow, too, sort of below the shoulder and above the elbow. I think hobbyists will be able to make something for that, too, pretty soon. What can happen if an arm fits poorly? So the arms that we're making below the elbow... Um, if they have a really sore spot or something where the bone is too close to the skin, it's just going to be sore, like a really bad fitting pair of shoes. So we just tell the parents, look, if it hurts, take it off. Right? Right. It shouldn't cause any long-term damage. They'll be like, this is uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good. Just take it off and, and, and you know, we'll make another one or um, get rid of it. Um, the risk isn't that high. Usually the, the person will be like, this just doesn't fit right. And um, who are the people getting these arms? Are they mostly kids? Where are they from? So in the U.S., it's mostly children. Um, just because insurance is resi- hesitant to give prosthetics to kids, they, they grow really fast, um, so they just don't um, want to provide them that often. So most in the U.S. are for, for kids. Um, outside of the U.S., there's no real access to any prosthetist at all. So in Africa and, and the... Um, Southeast Asia and and uh, uh, um, there places like Kosovo too. There there can be um, nothing. So we'll box up a bunch and send them over. And hopefully, there's a clinic or somebody there that can help fit them. That's mm-hmm. and uh, enable post the arm designs online. I understand so people can print them themselves. Most people don't have access to 3D printers. So how can they get the arms if they need them, especially in developed countries? So in developed countries, it's harder. 
um, you really need a 3D printer there or you have to send a pre-made arm. Um, that's sort of the way, the state of it right now. It's a big thing for me. So I actually design the arms. So, so I don't just make them. A big part of what I bring to the Enable community is, is the actual design of new arms. So the one that we gave to Zadie is a new design that I came up with and, and just shared online. It's completely open source and shared. Um, in the States... I would like to think there's a library or a makerspace or somewhere you can go. If you go down, they'll love the help. If you need an arm and you go down to your local library or your local makerspace, trust me, they would be ecstatic to help you make one. They can download the designs and they'll be geeky enough to figure it out. Overseas, you, you we need to get them a printer or something. And, and that's possible. Printers aren't that expensive. You, know, you can get a really nice one for 500 bucks. Um, even better one for a thousand dollars. That kind of money, getting that somewhere overseas, isn't isn't out of the question. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Fort Collins software engineer Jacqueline Buchanan volunteers for Enable, an organization that makes 3D printed arms and hands for people who need them. The project has provided two thousand people with new arms and hands. That's our show for today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.